Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, pray with me, please, as we continue our worship. Father, I'm grateful for the reminder this morning of your heart for people and how easy it is for us to get wrapped around the axle with our own difficulties, with our own challenges, with our own concerns, with our own preoccupations. And to lose sight of not only our obligation, but our great privilege as your people in this world to bear the fragrance of Christ in every place and to manifest in that way the truth of who he is to this world that doesn't know him. And that does involve manifesting his compassion, his empathy, his heart, his tenderness, his willingness to spend and be spent to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of the faith of of people. Father, we can be busy with so many things and we can forget really what is truly important, what it is that you've called us to. And I pray that even as we consider uh, this brief statement of the Hebrews writer today, that we would... We would share his vision, his sense of the greatness of of this one little episode and what it would mean in the playing out of your purposes for the world. Your goal that you would indeed renew the human race, that you would produce in the Messiah a new human family and sum up everything in him. Father, I pray that you would lift our eyes and our hearts above the immediacy of the things that preoccupy us and that you would allow us to have a great and glorious vision to see as you see, to have our own hearts and minds renewed in encouragement and joy a renewed sense of of zeal and resolution to be about the glorious work of this kingdom. So meet us in this time. Help us to see. And may we be encouraged and strengthened in faith as we see your glory in the face of Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've moved now beyond Abraham, and the writer moves in his consideration of this roll call of faith. He moves from Abraham to uh, Abraham's immediate descendants. 
He moves, uh, first of all, to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then he moves to Joseph. And I'd initially thought, well, I'll try to at least consider Isaac and Jacob together because of the closeness of them. But I, I, I want to just focus on Isaac today in the circumstance of the blessing of, of Jacob and Esau, because I think it's something that we often don't catch the significance of. It's something that's easy for us to just kind of pass by. But I think the writers put his finger on something very profound here, and, and so I, I want us to consider that today. But as I said, he transitions from Abraham to the son and the grandson, but very much still set in this context of the covenant. Remember, all of his discussion of Abraham's faith was tied to Abraham's faith in relation to God's promises to him. The promises that were bound up in the covenant relationship that God established with Abraham. It was the covenant that was at the center of Abraham's faith. And the same dynamic continues on now as he considers Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And even as he moves into Moses, the purpose of God revealed in his covenant with Abraham. That was the center of the faith of these individuals. As I've said, it's not just keep the faith, baby, God's going to do this, God's going to do that. I'm confident that it'll be this way. I'm confident that it will be that way. I'm confident that God is good in some abstract sort of way. It's owning and holding very tightly to uh, the God who has spoken, the God who has promised, the God who is working towards the accomplishing of his purposes in the world. It's an intentional, it's a knowledgeable, it's a very focused faith. Well, again, the covenant with Abraham was the the issue in Abraham's faith. And as I've said so many times, Isaac, the covenant heir, was the centerpiece of that. Everything God had promised to Abraham depended on a covenant heir, the inheritance of the land. Ultimately, the seed who was to come, all of the blessing flowing out to the families of the earth. All of that was bound up in an heir whom God would give to Abraham, an heir from his own body, an heir from Sarah's body. He was the one, Isaac was the one through whom all of the particulars of the covenant, all of what God had put out there and pledged of himself and his intent for the world, all of that was bound up in Isaac as we saw. And so it's, a, it's very suitable that the writer would turn to Isaac. And simply today, he says in verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. As I say, a very succinct statement, very easy to read, to, to read over, to pass on uh, and, and keep reading. But as I thought about this, uh, the first thing that kind of came to my mind is, why did he choose this particular thing as a testimony of Isaac's faith? Interestingly, Isaac plays a relatively small role in the Genesis narrative. There's about 15 chapters uh, in which he's present in the book of Genesis, but very little of that is he front and center. He really functions more as a transition from Abraham to to Jacob. And there are various reasons for that that I'd 
don't want to go into today. But in terms of the Genesis account, Isaac is not a front and center character. He doesn't have a hugely significant place. But yet the writer of Genesis is careful to establish uh, Isaac's faith in many ways. Primarily by tying him very closely with Abraham. If you go and you read the Isaac account, you see that you're saying, wait a minute, where have I seen this before? Wait a minute, hasn't this happened before? You have things that were uh, kind of front and center in Abraham's experience, his experience with Abimelech with his wife, his experience with Abimelech and, and the commander of Abimelech's army in terms of them coming and saying, you know, bless us, don't harm us. We know God is with you. We know that uh, you, you serve this mighty God and he has given you greatness and, and power. Do not come against us. Those things that happened in Abraham's experience were repeated in Isaac's experience. You read the same thing. And the text wants you to see that Isaac is indeed the continuation of the relationship between God and Abraham. He is indeed the covenant heir. But there are lots of things within that scope of of Isaac's presentation that the writer could have chosen to demonstrate his faith. But he picks this particular thing of the blessing of his sons, and not just the blessing of Jacob, but the blessing of both of his sons. One blessing is, in its own context, a negative blessing. And we'll see that as we take a look at this. So the the account that the writer is drawing from is actually in Genesis 27. But the context for it is 25, 26, and 27. And the writer of of Genesis does a very interesting thing. He establishes a determination on God's part concerning these two boys, Jacob and Esau. They were twins, born of the same birth mother, same father, same conception. And yet God, even while they're in the womb, makes a determination that Jacob will be the covenant heir. The elder will serve the younger. The elder will serve the younger. And then we see how Esau is actually born first. They're twins, but he's born first. He is the firstborn. He has the right of primogeniture, the right of the firstborn, which in the ancient world was a significant thing. Essentially, the family's name and, the, and, and the, the, the bulk of the wealth, the household of the father, passed to the firstborn son. You see, as soon as the boys are born and they begin to grow, you have this episode where Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. So you see, even the working out of God's determination that the elder will serve the younger. Esau doesn't know that. The text doesn't give you any reason to know about this prophecy that was actually given to Rebekah. It wasn't even given to Isaac. 
that the older will serve the younger. Two nations are in your womb. And there will be hostility between them, but the older will serve the younger. The younger will have the primacy. But you see it beginning to be played out in the selling of the birthright. Jacob's or Esau's despising of his privilege, his birthright, and the fact that because he's hungry, he's willing to pledge that to his brother for the sake of something to eat. That's how little he values the birthright. And those boys clearly would have known as they grew that their father was, in fact, this person related to God by covenant. There was a covenant relation. The God of Abraham was also the God of their father, Isaac. So the text lays all of that out in in chapter 25. In 27, you see the blessing coming to these two sons. But in between them is chapter 26. And if you look at it carefully, it's obviously out of sequence because it's the account of Isaac repeating what Abraham did, going down to Gerar and there uh, giving over his wife, Rebekah, to Abimelech, just as Abraham had done earlier. And it's in the context of that episode that God pledges, well, we can flip over there, God pledges to Isaac that he is in fact the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what comes to Isaac then is is an emphatic affirmation on God's part that he is indeed the covenant heir. He is indeed the one in whom all of these things are bound up. So chapter 26. After this event, he goes up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night. Beersheba was Abraham's first real foothold in the land, the place where he built an altar and planted a tamarisk tree, the place of the first foothold, the possession of the land, a covenant uh, event. The Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear. I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants for the sake of of my servant Abraham. And then he does as his father did. He built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh and pitched his tent there. So the writer of Genesis has the promise of the older being serving the younger, the the transference of the birthright. In chapter 27, we see a blessing that certifies that. But in 26, we see the significance of the birthright, the significance of the blessing in terms of the covenant significance. It's not just that Esau is the firstborn, he gets more of his father's property. The inheritance... The birthright that is associated with Isaac is the covenant birthright. That's the significance of it. And that's this this anachronistic inserting of 26 into the midst of this passage is to emphasize that what's at stake here is the covenant itself and the promises attached to it. So that's kind of the basic background. But as you read in chapter 27 of Genesis and really 25 through 27, what the text emphasizes is the tension in the story 
that exists in, in the various characters and the various circumstances. God's determination and then the conflict between Isaac and Jacob related to the birthright, and then even the conflict that involves Isaac and Rebekah indirectly and Jacob and Esau pertaining to the blessing. The tension between God's determination and the intent of the characters, the human characters, the two parents and the two boys, the way they're thinking about things, what they're hoping to accomplish, the way they're going about achieving their own agenda. Well, at the heart of that story is Isaac's intent to bless Esau. Esau is the firstborn. And on the face of it, that's exactly the way it ought to be. Esau should get the blessing of the firstborn because he's the firstborn. But that raises the question, did he not know, had he not been told that, the, that Esau had sold his birthright to his brother. Did he not know that? Did he not care? Did he think that's irrelevant? Esau's the firstborn. And even the larger question is, did he not know God's determination? As I said, when God gave this word to Rebekah when she was pregnant, it was to Rebekah. It wasn't to Isaac. But had she not shared that with him through all these years? that God had said that the older will serve the younger. Well, we don't really know, and the text doesn't tell you. It says that Isaac's intent was to transfer or to bestow his blessing on his oldest son. And as I say, more than simply the, the normal rights of the firstborn in an ancient you know, Near Eastern context, this blessing, by implication, is the transferring of the covenant status, the right of covenant inheritance. Well, the writer's summary of all of that, and, and you know the account, you know that he, he's intending to bless Esau, Rebecca tells Jacob, your brother's going to get the blessing. She makes him, uh, uh, you know, put on his, his brother's garments and, and put uh, uh, goat skins on his hands because Esau was a hairy guy so that he can fool his father. Jacob's old, or Isaac's old. He's virtually blind. And so they deceive Isaac into thinking that he's blessing Esau when he's actually blessing Jacob. That's what happens. And then Esau comes in and discovers what's happened, and he's upset. He obviously saw a distinction between the birthright and the blessing. However, he was imagining that because he said, he's taken my birthright. He used my hunger to uh, take the birthright from me. Now he's also stolen my blessing. That's the story. The Hebrews writer simply treats it in terms of Isaac's blessing being an act of faith. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. The other thing, as I mentioned, is that he attaches that faith of Isaac not just to the blessing of Jacob, the covenant heir, but the blessing of Esau as well. 
And sometimes people don't even realize that Esau did receive a blessing from his father. It wasn't the one he wanted, but he did receive a blessing from his father. Well, the challenge in this, at least as I look at this, the first thing that comes to my mind is, how does the Hebrews writer reach the conclusion that this episode was an act of faith? As I said, there are other things he could have pointed to to show that Isaac was a faithful man. Why does he pick this? And especially because what the Genesis text implies is that this was anything but an act of faith on Isaac's part. If you go back and you read the account in Genesis, you would not come away and say, oh, this was an act of faith on Isaac's part to bless his sons. He intended to give the blessing of the covenant to Esau, and he believed he had done that. He believed he had done that. It wasn't until Esau came in and he said, who are you? I'm Esau, your son. Well, who did I bless? What happened here? Then he realizes. He says, Jacob was rightly named. He has deceived me. He has deceived me. He has taken your blessing. As I say, why, you know, on the face of it, it seems like either Jake, uh, Isaac, in order to be at all faithful in this, he must not have known either about the, sell of, the sale of the birthright or certainly about God's word to Rebekah. How could he be faithful unless he had acted in ignorance? But even if he did act in ignorance, I would still argue that in the technical sense, how would you regard this as an act of faith? Because faith, in the way the writer is building his case, faith is owning God's revealed purposes. Faith is owning God's revealed purposes. It's not just doing what you think is a good thing. It's owning what God has revealed, what God has promised. Isaac's conviction and his intent in the blessing were completely contrary to God's purposes, even if he did act in ignorance. So where is the faith in that? How is the writer of Hebrews understanding this faith on the part of Isaac? And there's probably a lot of things that could be said, but I want to just point out two things that I think would suggest that even in his ignorance that this would be an act of faith. The first thing is that when Esau confronts Isaac, he doesn't retract his blessing. He doesn't say, I blessed the wrong son. I'm going to take it back and give it to you. He says, I have blessed your brother, and so he shall be blessed. Even though I blessed the wrong son in terms of my own intent, nonetheless, he will be blessed. What I have pronounced on him will come to pass. He believed that this bestowing of covenant blessing could not be recalled, and it would bring to full fruition what he had proclaimed prophetically, what he had pronounced upon that son. And so the the point is that it suggests that Isaac saw, even in this confusion and him doing what he didn't intend to do, he saw God's hand in that. 
He intended to bless Esau. But as it was, he was convinced that the son who received the blessing is the son that God intended to be blessed. And that blessing will be realized. It will be realized. This was the outcome God had intended, regardless of what he intended, regardless of the deception, the selfishness, all of the things that were wrapped into this. It was the outcome that God had intended. And the second thing is that this act of blessing, Genesis wants you to see this act of blessing as the culmination, the climactic culmination of Isaac's life of faith. From the time that he was offered up on Mount Moriah, he had known that he was the covenant heir. He was old enough at Moriah to know what had happened and to understand it and to remember it. And his father, Abraham, would have taught him through the years, even in the the transferring of the blessing to him, that he was the heir of the covenant. And for all of his weaknesses and his failures, very similar to his father, Isaac had walked with the Lord throughout his life. And now he's old and he sees that his death is coming And he is intending to pass the covenant and its blessing on to the next generation. For all of his ignorance, he is still acting in faith. He recognizes that this covenant that God has made with his father has been passed to him. And now it's time for him to pass it on to the next generation. Again, he concluded that God had gotten that covenant blessing to the right son, regardless of what he intended. And it's from that vantage point then that you see in Genesis 27 that he extends his blessing to Esau as well. Esau says, Father, you blessed Jacob. He stole my blessing. Don't you have a blessing for me as well? And Isaac blesses him but in a different sort of way. He blessed Esau with the recognition that the covenant right, the covenant status has passed to your brother. Whatever I had believed prior to this moment, that's the way that it now is. God, by his own determination and contrary to human convention, had determined, as he said to, uh, as God had revealed to Rebekah, that the older would serve the younger. And yet in blessing Esau, there is at least a hint that blessing would come to him as well. Blessing in a different sort of way. Esau, too, would go on to become a great and a royal nation. Just as had happened with Ishmael, The covenant passed to Isaac, not to Ishmael, but God said, Ishmael is your son. I will also make him a great nation associated with kings and land and dominion. And so it would be with Esau. God would give him the land of Edom and Mount Seir as his inheritance for him and his descendants. And you see, as Moses is rehearsing, even with the sons of Israel, as 
uh, as they're preparing to come into the land, he says, remember how God brought you through the wilderness. And he said, we turned and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me saying, you've circled this mountain long enough, turn north and command the people saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Don't provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, not even as little as a footstep, because I have given Seir and the region of Edom to Esau as a possession. I will not give you anything that I've given to Esau. There is a blessing that has come to him as well. Esau, too, became a great man, a wealthy man, a a man whose descendants were chieftains. And he gave him a land and he gave him an inheritance. But the covenant and its promises belong to Jacob. That's the distinction between the two blessings The covenant belongs to Jacob. It would be through Jacob's seed that all the families of the earth would be blessed. In other words, it's ultimately a messianic thing in that from Abraham, the messianic line has to go through one of Abraham's sons. Isaac, not Ishmael. Now that line has to come through one of Isaac's sons, Jacob, not Esau. This is about the continuance of the covenant in view of the fact that in the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As Paul said, ultimately looking to the seed of Abraham that is the Messiah himself. So the issue here is the transference of the covenant, but specifically as the covenant looked to the accomplishing of God's purposes for the whole world, for the whole creation. That blessing passes to Jacob, and you see God saying that to Jacob in chapter 28. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So whereas the Genesis account highlights sin, faithfulness, foolishness, selfishness, all of the the failings of the human participants, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, all of them are culpable in this process of the transferring of the blessing. But in that way, the text also underscores God's faithfulness. He will fulfill his purposes. He will accomplish all that he pledged to Abraham. He will bring this to pass through this covenant that he enacted in spite of the failure of the human instruments. And that's a central thread through the whole salvation history in the scriptures. It moves the story along. With each individual, with each circumstance, in each time, there's nothing but human failure. And yet, the covenant promises and the movement towards its fulfillment continue on. David was the great prototype, and he brought an end to the kingdom. Abraham was the great patriarch, 
And if it were up to him, the covenant would have ended with him because he gave over Sarah to Abimelech. It would have ended with Isaac. It would have ended with Jacob. It would have ended with Moses. God is faithful in the midst of constant failure on the part of human beings. And that's one of the great points of hope and confidence moving through the scriptures. It's a central thread in the salvation history. Let every man be a liar. God is true. And Paul said this is a trustworthy statement Even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He will accomplish his ends. He does it through human instruments, but not through their faithfulness per se, but even through their unfaithfulness. God brings a faithful outcome through unfaithfulness. Well, I wanted to end today just by, again, Jacob and Esau kind of sit at the center in the scriptures of this idea of a covenant winnowing. And I'm not trying to change the subject, but but when you look at the Jacob and Esau issue, often where our minds go is to Malachi chapter 1. God says to Israel, I have loved you. And Israel says, how have you loved us? Was not Esau as well as Jacob, Isaac's son, and yet Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And we've done all sorts of things with that and arrived at all sorts of conclusions, but but the things that I've discussed today are critical to understanding even what God is getting at as he confronts Israel with its lovelessness in Malachi chapter 1. And the most natural thing for us to do when we look at Jacob and Esau and we look at even the choice of of Jacob over Esau is to somehow see something in those individuals. We say, well, you know, Esau sold his birthright. Esau was kind of a coarse and crass sort of man in certain ways. And this love and this hatred are somehow tied, uh, that we somehow have to view them in a personal and in an ethical sense. God's love for Jacob, his hatred for Esau, expressed something about his sentiment concerning those two men. And even when we get into Hebrews 12, he's going to say, you know, this godlessness of Esau that he sold the birthright for a single meal. And later on, when he wanted to undo it, he couldn't. There was, no, there was no returning for him. We say, in a sense, it's understandable how God would hate him. It's understandable how God would love Jacob. And yet, when we come to the book of Romans, we see that Paul makes much of the fact that this love and this hatred existed before either of the boys was even born. It did not have anything to do with something that Esau did or Jacob did or something in their personalities. Those dispositions ultimately, where I'm going with this, is that those dispositions of love and hatred were nothing personal. They weren't ethical It wasn't God's assessment of of what kind of men they were. 
those dispositions were an, a way of expressing his covenant intent with respect to them. The love for Jacob and the hate for Esau pertain to this issue of covenant election. Not election in the sense that we like to think about it as, okay, who's elected to be saved and who's not elected to be saved. It wasn't personal in that sort of a way. This is covenant election in the sense of which son will carry forward the covenant purposes of God that will ultimately culminate in the Messiah himself. This isn't even about, we can't read this and say, okay, that tells us Jacob was saved, Esau wasn't saved. This is not about covenant, elect, covenant or, or election in that sense. This is election for the covenant. God's love for Jacob was his determination that his intent for the world bound up in Abraham would be carried forward through Jacob rather than Esau. So in the same way, we don't say that God's hatred was the reason for uh, you know, uh, Esau selling his birthright or that God hated him as a result of him selling his birthright or whatever, however we want to connect those dots. That hatred is merely the inherent flip side of the love that is God's covenant electing determination. So God's hatred for Esau is simply expressing the fact that he was not chosen to perpetuate the covenant. Jacob was. We have to understand this hatred of Esau and also his descendants by extension in terms of covenant purpose. This isn't some proof text for reprobation, again, in the way that we want to say, okay, God hated Esau eternally. He consigned him to hell everlastingly, eternally. That's not the point here. God's hatred of Esau took account of his Abrahamic heritage, and God blessed Esau. We see Jacob blessing Esau. Now, not with a covenant blessing, with a non-covenant blessing. But God's favor, in a certain sense, also went to Esau and his descendants. And even more, and this is, this is really the high point of what I'm trying to get at, God included Esau's descendants. And if you go back and read Malachi, God says, you know, Jake, Esau I hated, make his heritage a desolation, never to be inhabited. This is all the language of Israel's life with God and the way that Esau and his descendants treated the covenant nation of Israel. But Esau's descendants were written into God's design to gather to himself people from all nations and tribes. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Oh, except for Esau's family, because God hated him. And if you go back and you look at the way James interacts with Amos chapter 9, this is the prophecy of when God will restore David's house and throne and kingdom, David's fallen tabernacle. To 
too much flipping around here. God says to, to Amos, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. David's house. David's kingdom. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Edom. Esau's inheritance, Esau's descendants. And when James cites from that passage, he uses it as evidence to prove that, remember, the churches come together, the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, to talk about how do we understand the Gentiles that are coming in? How do we understand the Gentiles that are coming to faith? Do they also need to become proselytes to Judaism, Torah, circumcision? And James says, Simeon has re Simon, you know, Peter talking about what God did, even, you know, in Cornelius' house. But he says, Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. You see how James understands that prophecy from Amos. My point is simply this. Esau's offspring, just like the rest of the non-covenant peoples of the earth, the rest of the Gentiles, also had a share in God's promise that Abraham would one day become the father of a multitude of nations. The winnowing between Jacob and Esau was that the covenant would go forward unto the end that finally Abraham would become the father of a multitude of peoples. And in that time, Esau and his descendants, if you will, too, would have a share in that Abrahamic fatherhood. This is what Paul is getting at over and over again in Romans, in Galatians, is that because really being covenant people in Abraham derives from being joined to the ultimate seed promised to Abraham, the non-covenant descendants, the Gentiles, and even Abrahamic offspring that weren't a part of that covenant community, the sons of Keturah, Ishmael, Esau, all of these non-covenant peoples could themselves become covenant sons and daughters by being joined to the true covenant son to whom the promises pertain. But the opposite side of that coin is true as well. As Paul says, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly. Circumcision is not in the flesh. He's a Jew who's one inwardly. Circumcision done in the inner man. If, if really being covenant sons of Abraham derives from being joined to the seed of Abraham, then being a fleshly descendant, fleshly covenant descendant of Abraham is irrelevant unless you are joined to Abraham in the Messiah. 
And so just as the descendants of Esau and all the families of the earth set aside in God's purposes for the sake of moving this forward in a narrow way to the one seed through then whom all the families of the earth would be gathered in, including Esau's descendants, if the non-covenant peoples of, of the earth can become sons of Abraham, it means also that the covenant descendants of Abraham might prove to not be covenant descendants at all. They might find that they are simply children of Abraham in the flesh. They too have to be joined to the Messiah. He's not a Jew who's one outwardly. He's a Jew who's one inwardly. If you belong to the Messiah, then you are sons of Abraham and heirs of the promise. I'm not saying that this idea of a future engrafting of Esau's descendants was evident in the blessing that Isaac understood that or that it was evident in the blessing that he gave to Esau. But I think the Hebrews writer understood that. Isaac acted in faith towards both sons, one immediately in terms of covenant inheritance, but even towards the other in the sense that Isaac understood that though this was going to Jacob, ultimately the goal was that in this inheritance, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And therefore Esau is not excluded from that either. When God's purposes are realized and he gathers in all the families of the earth. Isaac was acting in faith. He spoke the words of blessing that drew on the significance, the meaning of the covenant, his own share in it, and the purposes of God to move it forward. Those purposes of God would be accomplished through covenant with Abraham. He would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob would become Israel, and then God would be the God of the people of Israel, but Israel for the sake of the world. So that ultimately Israel would become Israel indeed in a son to come from Israel. And in that day, Esau and Ishmael would see their father's blessing come to their own households. Together with all the households of mankind, together with the remnant of Israel and Judah. Very familiar passage, but I just want to end with this. And then we'll pray. This is Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, all you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver, and he has said to me, You, you, singular, are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. It seems that my life has not produced the fruit that you sought. But surely the justice due me is with Yahweh. 
and surely my reward is with my God. And now thus says Yahweh who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him, because I am honored in the sight of the Lord and God is my strength. And he says to me, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my deliverance, my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, its Holy One, to the one who is despised, to the one who is abhorred by the nation, the sons of Israel, to the one who is the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall bow down, because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. In a favorable time, I've answered you. In a day of deliverance, I have helped you. I will keep you. I will preserve you. I will give you for a covenant of the peoples to restore the land, to make them inherit it, inherit the desolate heritages. Saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads, they will feed. On the bare heights, they will not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching heat nor sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and guide them to springs of water. The Lord will accomplish this. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. It's not enough that you should be my servant on behalf of the Abrahamic people. You will be my servant on behalf of all the families of the earth. In faith... Abraham blessed, or Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in faith. Somehow, some way, God would yet graft in Esau. God would yet graft in all the families of the earth. Father, it is a marvelous story, and it very much suits in my mind, with the things that that Cliff was pressing us with, that you are a God who cares about people. It's very easy for us to fall into the trap that the Jews fell into. We are the covenant people. We are God's election. We are the faithful ones. We are the righteous ones. We are the ones who have Torah. We have the prophets. We have the covenants. And Israel's great unrighteousness was that it failed to understand that it was called on behalf of all the families of the earth. Israel's unique covenant election was that it should be a light to the nations. And Jesus becomes that true embodiment of Israel, the covenant son, because he is the one who is the light unto the nations. He is the one who has brought to fruition the eternal God's design to gather to himself people of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And we are the ones who have been given that work to accomplish 
Jesus is the one who is the gathering servant, but he does that work through those that he sends. The Great Commission is just simply our privilege to be the servants of this design of our God in Christ, to bless all the families of the earth in him. Father, I pray that you will give us such a large vision. This is a world that you love. This is a world that you are committed to. And will many perish? Yes. But it is not your good pleasure. It is a sorrowful thing. That men would rather cling to what they think is life rather than find life in the Messiah. That they would rather pursue their own imagined destiny than the human destiny that you have appointed for your human creature. But Father, I pray that we will be faithful witnesses, that we will be faithful testifiers, that we will bear the fragrance of Christ in every place. We can't point to anyone or any people or any group and say, they are rejected of the Lord. Your secret counsel will stand. And even though Esau was sent away in that day, deprived of the blessing that he sought, yet even now, in the fullness of the times, Esau has seen his own blessing in his own descendants, whether we discern them or not, his own descendants being gathered into the Abrahamic family. An innumerable multitude of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Abraham is deed becoming the father of many peoples. And I pray, Father, that we would have that burden that you have. Help us in these things. Help us to live well in each day. To truly be willing, as Cliff said, to be poured out as a sacrifice, a drink offering on the service and the sacrifice of the faith of others. To, to spend and be spent. And it's wearing work. We get tired. We get frustrated. We get fed up. We have so many things to deal with, so many things that press us. But this is our glorious calling. This is our high calling, the glorious inheritance of the sons of God. To be your instruments for filling your house, your instruments for renewing your human creation and ultimately the whole creation. Father, may it be something that we view as very precious, very delightful to us. And give us the strength and the courage and the, the presence of mind to continue to labor. Not for a season, not for a month, not for five years, but until we draw our last breath. That we would too, as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, that we too would prove to be a faithful people serving your work, your purposes, your goal in the world. Help us in these things. Strengthen us for the task. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.